This is The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 121. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, the usual housekeeping stuff. If you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can find me on social media. You can find me on Facebook at Brian McClanahan, on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. And of course, you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just go out and look for Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to search for all those things, you can go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's Brian with an O at the top of the page. You can find all my social media buttons and you can find me there. Also, if you're on my webpage, please give me an email address and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Also on BrianMcClanahan.com, if you go to BrianMcClanahan.com forward slash support, you can throw a few pennies my way, my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. Anything you decide to donate is greatly appreciated. Also, please don't forget that you, my new book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, is out. You can get it on any major bookstore. You can also buy an autographed copy on my website if you do choose to uh, want that. And after you get it, please go ahead and leave a review at Amazon.com. The more reviews, the better. Also, please review this podcast at iTunes. If you do uh, uh, subscribe through iTunes, I'd appreciate the reviews there as well. Okay, let's talk about today's topic. And... Um, it's something that actually came up in a social media debate, quote-unquote debate, I had with a Princeton professor named Kevin Cruz. Now, Kevin Cruz subsequently blocked me because he couldn't answer my questions, and uh, he, he's uh, very condescending. And, um, and so I can't actually send him this podcast, but I would love for him to listen to it because uh, the point of this particular podcast is going to be reviewing a book that he suggested I read, which I'd already read, uh, and, of course, he also uh, suggested I read a number of articles, which just amounted to essentially op-ed pieces that I talked about in the other podcast, AHA Revisionism. So uh, I guess he didn't really know who he was talking to. It's not surprising. But uh, Dr. Cruz makes a habit of trying to belittle people and being very snarky and condescending. In fact, he told me to get to reading. So my response to him would be to get to reading some other things as well. Uh, but... Uh, I want to focus on a review of a book that he suggested proved his point entirely, and that is David Blight's Race and Reunion. Now, this book was published in 2001, and it's seen as the, uh, as he says, it's the classic study on, uh, on the topic of uh, post-bellum thought in America. Now, first and foremost, David Blight, let me just talk about David Blight for a second, who wrote the book. David Blight is professor of Yale, professor of history at Yale University. He is uh, a person who essentially focused his uh, his studies and his writing on African American history. So, uh, this particular book is going to have one section of it that I think is very good uh, in that regard. Uh, when when he talks about uh, the African American experience and the postbellum period, however. There are some things that I just find so problematic with this book, and not just that, problematic with the whole idea of memory studies. And so I would like to actually start with a quote from John Lukacs, who was um, a great historian in his own right. But he, his, his uh, definition of history is this. History is the remembered past. Okay, so if history is the remembered past, then memory studies are essentially history. So what, 
what we have here in quote-unquote memory studies is essentially history. Uh, this, is, this is how stupid the historic profession has gotten to think that, ooh, we have this new field of memory studies. That's what all history is. It's all the study of memory. In fact, memory forms the basis of all history. Uh, and how we view a topic or how we view a subject or an event or a person or a place, that's all memory. Uh, we base our research and our writings and our stories of the past on collective memory memories. I mean, that, that's, what, that's what history is. Uh, when you look at the earliest histories, uh, you go back to the Greeks, and I think the best example of this is someone like Thucydides, who recognized that he was dependent on his sources for understanding uh, where, where his history was going, how he's going to write his history. And so those were memories. How did people remember a particular event or a place or a person? So memory studies is simply just saying, I'm going to write history. Uh, and so there is no field of memory studies, even though someone like Eric Foner said, oh, this is a great thing. Uh, he wrote a very, you know, uh, uh, slobbering review of this particular book in the New York Times. Uh, oh, this is such a great thing. We have memory studies. Ooh, this is such a new field. Um, you know, newsflash, all of history is memory studies. So that whole idea of we have this whole new field of memory studies is simply just saying we have history. Uh, it's just completely preposterous. The other thing about this field of memory studies, it's a cheap version of intellectual history. If you want to read a really good intellectual history, go out and read Eugene Genovese's The Mind of the Masterclass, for example. That's a very good intellectual history. Uh, this book, not so much. In fact, the best thing I can say about it is that one chapter on, uh, on the African-American memory of the war, which is, uh, is interesting, and then that it's a synthesis of several other things. So if you really want to read, for example, he has a chapter dedicated, and I'll get into some of these things, but he has a chapter dedicated to uh, the quote-unquote lost cause in the South in the postbellum period. We'll just read Gaines Foster's Ghost of the Confederacy. They're essentially the same thing. Uh, Gaines Foster says the almost the exact same thing that David Blight says in just a longer book, and it's actually better and more comprehensive. Though, uh, what's interesting about this point that Kevin Cruz is making, and I'll explain why he suggested I read this book in a second, it proves nothing as to what he thought this actually proved. So, um, or if you want to read, uh, you know, a, a, a version of Reconstruction that David Blight supports, just go read Eric Foner. It's the same thing. Uh, so the best thing I can say about this book is it's really a synthesis. Uh, but more than anything else, I think that, uh, you know, and, and Blight had written a lot about Frederick Douglass. So actually, you need to preface just about everything in the book based on the statement Frederick Douglass says, because essentially that's what you're going to get into with this. It's a, it's a lot. He, he saturates the book with Frederick Douglass. He's all over the place, yet forgetting people like Hiram Rhodes Revels, who he should have cited a, at least once in talking about postbellum politics and why Revels uh, abandoned the Republican Party at one point. Why he said, look, this party no longer suits me. Uh, it's, um, it's something that I think that uh, it, it takes away from the book. The other thing, as I'll get into when he starts talking about segregation, he doesn't even cite uh, C. Van Woodward's uh, The Strange Career of Jim Crow, which uh, there's a nice little chapter in that particular book that explains the origins of segregation, and lo and behold, it's not the South. So uh, there are several problems with this book. Um, but uh, again, I think that we'll, we'll get into that here in a second. So first and foremost, why was this particular book 
brought up to me as something I should get to reading, even though, of course, I'd already got to reading it. But why, why is this book uh, so important that I get to reading? Well, my point was, and I, and I said this to Cruz, and if you want to go back to my Twitter account, you can find the tweet. And, of course, I was condescending towards Cruz because he needed it. But not just that. Uh, he said that Confederate monuments are there to obscure biracial democracies. That's why they were, that's why they were erected, to obscure biracial democracies. So I asked him, I said, prove, show me where, uh, and of course, Cruz liked to say he's an actual historian. Well, I'm an actual historian too, uh, Cruz, and I disagree with you. So prove to me, just, I said, cite somewhere where it shows that these monuments were erected to obscure biracial democracy. So he says, here, read this book. Um, okay, and I said, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't prove anything. And then he cited all of these AHA op-eds, which, again, don't prove anything because all I wanted was one example where somebody stood up and said, we are erecting this Confederate monument to obscure biracial democracy, to ensure white supremacy, because essentially that's what he's saying. Now, Blight tries to say that in this book, but he doesn't ever actually prove it. Now, certainly, and we'll get, we'll get into some of these things, certainly uh, the United States, the entire United States, as Blight does agree in the late 19th, early 20th century, was racist. Everyone was. Uh, for the most part. I mean, it was, you, you did have people, of course, who weren't, and, and uh, then you had the African-American memory of the war, and that's a nice contribution to, the, to our understanding of the past in that particular way. And how they viewed the war and their understanding of the war, its causes, its consequences, uh, its impact, that kind of thing is important to understand. But it's also important to understand the dominant, quote-unquote, memory, meaning the dominant history of the conflict, was written by people white Americans who participated in it and who had a vested understanding of why they did it. And so their memories weren't obscured, to use Kevin Cruz's term, by any type of lies. Essentially, that's what he's saying, that everyone was lying, that they were all lying the whole time, uh, and that this, this separate memory isn't the memory we should really listen to. We should listen to this memory. So essentially what's happened over time is he does show that the, the African-American memory of the war was substantially different from the white memory of the war. And what we've done in, in American historical studies, and not just that, in the teaching of American history today, is essentially taken that particular memory and made it the dominant memory, whereas it was the minority memory at the time. 50 years after the war, 30 years after the war, 75 years after the war, even 100 years after the war, it was not the dominant memory in any particular way. It was the minority memory. So the dominant memory, as written by people who participated in the conflict, North and South, and people who were studying the conflict very shortly after it, or writing about it very shortly after it, was different from that particular memory. So which one is, is right? I think we could say, well, they're, they're both distinct memories. And as two distinct memories, one is not wrong and one is not right. They are both memories, and so both should be valid. But what we have done is said this particular memory, the dominant memory, is invalid, whereas this particular memory, the minority memory, is valid. So when you, when you do that, when you choose sides in that way, you're not being a very good historian if you're just saying, okay, this is, this is what the memory was. And so by saying that uh, somehow these statues, and they're two separate issues, actually. You know, America being racist in the 19th and 20th centuries, I mean, 
It's like Blight made this great, great discovery. Hey, I found that people are racist. This is exactly what uh, you know Kevin Cruz did in his little book on white flight from Atlanta. Hey, there were racists in Atlanta. Oh my goodness, you discovered that all on your own. Wow. I mean, that was that was deep research right there. There were racists in America. No way. I would never have guessed that people in the 19th century were racist. But essentially, even ending slavery and racism were two separate things, as you find by understanding the northern view of the war and the southern view of the war. Northerners could very easily say, well, good, we ended slavery, yet we don't think white people and black people are equal. And essentially, they said that over and over again. Uh, And I I wrote a little piece for... um, the Abbeville Institute, entitled, Is White Supremacy an Exclusively Southern Ideology? And I gave quote after quote after quote from Northerners before the war and during the war that explained that uh, they were just as racist, if not more vehemently racist, than Southerners because they were not even around black people on a regular basis. Uh, There's a couple of interesting things in the book where it's almost like he can't quite understand what he's actually saying disproves his entire thesis, and I'm talking about David Blight. Uh, But um, it's amazing how how he does that, and he tries to explain things off. Well, it must be this or it must be that. Again, that's conjecture. That's not very good history. That's guessing. If you don't have any conclusive proof of it, well, you're just you're just guessing. And he does that every now and then. He gets a little tedious with some things, and he starts trying to guess. Well, I think it might be this, or maybe it was this, or maybe it was this. He's guessing. It's conjecture. Uh, now you can do that, and I've even done that in some of my own books. Uh, well, I mean, it could be this, it could be that, uh, but I do always try to find proof for what I'm saying and why it actually happened, rather than just saying, well, I'm going to make this stuff up and hope that it sticks somewhere, and maybe that's the case. But that's essentially what Blight does several times in this particular book. So I'm going to say, if you want to read a book that's a synthesis, it's not a classic. I mean, for me to be a classic, for for a history book to be a classic, it has to be a pioneering book in the field. This is not that. It's not pioneering at all. It's a synthesis. Uh, it's, it's frankly not that well written at times. It is a little pedantic. Uh, it's okay, but it is a cheap intellectual history. You could even read Michael O'Brien's Intellectual Histories of the South. They're better uh, than, than this. Uh, you know, you can read Bernard Balin, uh, Forrest MacDonald. I mean, go out and take your pick of people who are writing essentially intellectual histories at times, uh, and it would be much better than reading this because memory studies essentially is a cheap version of intellectual history, and memory is history. So we're, we're, this, is a, this is a history essentially is what he's saying. This is a history of race and union and how people viewed race. Again, uh, the point of this book is to place race at the center of the entire process of the war and Reconstruction. Now, there's no doubt that people did talk about race quite a bit, uh, that race was an issue, um, and uh, that uh, Blight is not incorrect in asserting that, that people did bring up race. However, at times in the book, he seems to... Uh, disprove his own thesis that it was the most important thing when he talks about the reconciliationists, those that were interested in binding up the wounds of the war as fast as possible. Why would that be? He actually says it a couple of times, and I'm not going to quote it, but he does it uh, when he's talking about uh, Horace Greeley, for example, and Horace Greeley being the liberal Republican, or a man like Carl Schurz, who was uh, a union general, but later uh, became uh, very much a reconciliationist. Uh, but, and of course, also the, the, star, the founder of the kindergarten movement in America, but not just that, 
Uh, these people wanted to heal the wounds of the war because they were interested in economic reconciliation, which actually goes to prove that economics were a major factor both before and after the war in trying to both maintain the Union, wanting the South to remain in the Union by force if necessary, and also to trying, trying to heal up this war as quickly as possible so we can get back to the business of business. Uh, that was important in this particular process. So when Greeley was interested in reconciliation, it was that. He wanted to ensure they could get back to doing business again because Reconstruction was bad for business. Uh, Charles Adams, who he, uh, you know, he talks about at the end of the book very disparagingly because Charles Adams was a racist. I mean, go figure. Who in the 19th century? Oh my gosh, there's a racist in the 19th century. No way. Uh, but uh, Charles Adams uh, was very interested in the economic fa uh, facts of the war and not necessarily in race. And that's because he, like many other Northerners, didn't think race was part of this. Certainly, they could talk about slavery and the abstract principle, we're against slavery. However, as northern laws themselves showed, northerners were no more interested in racial egalitarianism than southerners. In fact, as C. Van Woodward pointed out, and this is why it just, it just blows apart his whole idea that the south somehow won the peace by foisting their racist attitudes on the north, and, and northerners reluctantly bought this stuff just to try to heal the wounds. It was already in them. They already were what... The South didn't have to sell them a bill of goods because this is what they already believed themselves. Uh, so, as C. Van Woodward pointed out, and as Alexis de Tocqueville said, uh, and others, the the North was actually much more racist than the South in terms of uh, how blacks and whites were around each other, mingled together, uh, worked together. You didn't find that in the North, really at all, in the antebellum period. In fact, the Republican Party made it clear in the lead-up to the 1860 election, and even after that, as they were uh, characterized as the party of racial equality, that they were just as interested in the, in the government of the white man than anybody else. In fact, you could, fight, you could cite uh, Eric Foner in that way in his book, Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men, where he points out over and over again, you could put a white in front of any of those, so it could be free white labor, free white soil, free white men, because that's what they wanted for the West. That was the point of opposing slavery extension of the territories. These people in the North did not want competition from slave labor, nor did they want black, free black labor or free black people living in those states. And C. Van Woodward, again, in his The Strange Career of Jim Crow, points this out, that segregation was actually created in the North. Northerners were doing these things first. In fact, the black codes, the very thing the South was lambasted for, were uh, written in the North first. Uh, vagrancy laws and these kind of things. Southerners were simply copying northern laws. Uh, there were states in the north, as again, Woodward points out, that uh, had uh, laws against blacks living in those states. These were exclusionary laws. And so who are, where, how is it, in what world is it that somehow uh, northerners were adopting southern views of race no, these were American views of race. And so when he's also disparaging, when he starts talking about how people were starting to say, well, look, slavery was a national normity. It, it was, uh, you know, it, it was uh, brought about by both sections. No one section was more guilty than the other. Uh, he says, well, this is, I mean, this is just uh, almost like he's saying this is a complete lie. It was 100% true, entirely true. Uh, so what, what's happened, the reconciliationist message, and he was also very critical of Booker T. Washington, among other people, for pushing the exact same message. 
What is wrong with that? Is that not the aim? It, would race relations not be better if it wasn't necessarily always victimization and antagonism uh, between the races? Would that not be better? Would it not be better to have Booker T. Washington's message? Now, we can look back on it and say, okay, uh, we shouldn't be pushing the, the uh, idea that uh, one race is superior or inferior to another. Uh, we shouldn't be doing that uh, in the 20th century, 21st century. Uh, but we can say that, hey, look, whites and blacks have worked together for three or 400 years in the South. This is what Booker T. Washington was saying. We need to cast down your buckets where you are. This is a good, solid message for 21st century America. But no, we don't do that. We deal in situations where we're saying, that's all just white supremacy. Tear that statue down. Uh, when you do that, you're going to create, you're going to create conflict. I mean, that's the whole point. This is the, the idea is to create conflict, uh, to create violence in some ways. And so which message is more peaceful? Which message is better for racial reconciliation? Uh, and I think that's what's lost in this entire book. He misses the entire point of reconciliation. Now, uh, we can say, of course, that uh, Southerners were did believe in, quote-unquote, white supremacy. So did everybody in America, for the most part, again, in the 19th and early 20th centuries. You could find people that didn't. Of course, you could find uh, black leaders that didn't. And as I said, the chapter on black memory is very good for understanding what the African-American community was thinking in the postbellum period. It's an excellent chapter. It adds to the history, to the richness of our understanding of the past, to the remembered past. It adds to it, certainly. Great chapter. But... Uh, to say that these statues were erected for white supremacy is to miss the entire point. He doesn't say that the, cha that the statue to Robert Gould Shaw was erected in, in, in uh, Boston, Massachusetts for black supremacy. He doesn't say that at all. It's simply there as a memory of the 54th Massachusetts. And that's excellent. Uh, th th it's, it's an excellent thing to do, to remember the deeds of a group of soldiers who may have been largely forgotten or underappreciated or overlooked. That's a great thing to do. Just as Southerners erecting statues to Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson or to the common soldier, which is what most of these Confederate monuments are, are not erected in any way to white supremacy. And the other thing that was funny is some one of his little syncophants then uh, put a, a picture up and said, here, just read the statues. And, of course, it's the Liberty Monument there in New Orleans that is often cited. It is the one monument. It's the only monument, to my, to my knowledge, and I, I mean, I might be wrong on this, but I don't think I am. It's the only monument across the entire South that says anything about white supremacy being a reason that the monument was erected. That's it. And it's not a Confederate monument. It was erected during Reconstruction. It's not a Confederate monument. The Confederate monuments, as I've already talked about, if you want to go out there, I've got a speech that I made in Atlanta uh, a couple of years ago. Confederate monuments, if you just read the inscriptions of those, they talk about states' rights, they talk about the sacrifice of soldiers, they talk about uh, loyal southern women, They talk, in some of the cases they talk about loyal slaves, whatever the case may be. Of course, if you say, well, loyal slaves, that's distorting the past. How so? How so? Uh, he, he mentions a speech that John Gordon made before Tuskegee Institute, where he actually said the same thing, and the thousands of people in attendance, many of them black, stood up and cheered, said, yes, this is reconciliation. Uh, so how is this a negative message? And how does this particular book prove that these monuments were erected to obscure biracial democracy? 
Certainly, Southerners didn't believe in, bi- I mean, that's not true. Some Southerners did believe in biracial democracy. It's clear that the evidence is clear that some did. Uh, and even into the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there were still uh, blacks in state legislatures. He also said, and <laughs> there's, a, there's a very funny passage uh, in this book. Uh, I want to read this to you. Uh, it says, quote, on Memorial Day, 1883, at Rainsford Island, Massachusetts, Julius C. Chapel, the lone black member of that state's legislature. Wait a second here. This is in Massachusetts in 1883, the lone black member of the legislature of Massachusetts. I thought these people believed in biracial democracy, yet there's only one? Oh, me, my gosh. What's going on here? These people must be, must be extremely racist for not having a, a legislature of 50% black, black Massachusetts. I mean, how could they get away with this stuff? Uh, but uh, so... Is is Massachusetts then racist because they only had one black member of the legislature? Uh, Chapel predicted that the day was at hand when all civil rights would be accorded us in South Carolina as, as well as we now enjoy Massachusetts and Texas as well as in Maine. For at least one stunning moment in Richmond, Virginia, on that same Decoration Day, 1883, newly organized black GAR posts in the former Confederate capital joined with a post from Worcester, Massachusetts, and a parade to the cemetery. Most remarkably, some members of the R.E. Lee post of Confederate veterans, veterans participated as well, formally presenting floor arrangements to the black veterans and to a, a black women's memorial association. Uh, but, of course, he said, well, this can only be surmised because of the, uh, uh, of the adjuster, readjuster ticket, which had uh, taken hold of Virginia. Uh, it couldn't have been any other reason. I mean, these people just, I mean, it had to be that. couldn't be anything else. Uh, and he also started talking about how, you know, reunions in the South would have, uh, you know, black participants in them. Uh, and he had a picture in there one time. Uh, here is a Confederate veteran reunion with a few black people. And look at the pride of these guys, these uh, African-Americans in this particular photograph. Like, the two things are different. Uh, I, I just don't, I didn't see it. I didn't see the whole point of the two photographs juxtapositioned against each other. It just didn't didn't make any sense to me. So... Uh, this book proves nothing. In fact, it actually it actually disproves the idea that these uh, monuments were uh, were erected to obscure biracial democracy. He does uh, give you a speech by Bradley T. Johnson. Uh, Bradley T. Johnson from Maryland addressed uh, in 1896 a crowd at the opening of the uh, Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond, where he did talk about slavery and he did say some things that were very racist, without a doubt. Uh, but he says that that concluded his speech, almost like this was the rousing crescendo of the speech, and everyone would stand up and say, yes, we uh, support this white supremacy stuff. In fact, that wasn't the end of the speech, not even close to it. In fact, the end of the speech talked about no lost cause. Uh, it's completely different from the view you would get of the speech if you simply just read David Blight's assessment of it. Uh, so he cherry picks. The other thing that I don't like about this book, there's nothing in here uh, about Union veterans during the war and what they were saying they were fighting for. He seems to miss the fact that at the beginning of the war, to a man, Unioner, Northerners were going to war to save the Union. And when the uh, Emancipation Proclamation became a war aim, you had mass desertions in the Union Army uh, because these people said they weren't fighting to free slaves. They weren't fighting for racial equality. Even Lincoln himself said he wasn't doing that. Uh, I guess he misses that entire thing. 
uh, that uh, you had these large numbers of Union veterans who said this. Now, of course, a lot of them came around, as uh, James McPherson has pointed out, and for Calls and Comrades, a lot of these people did come around eventually to supporting emancipation as a war aim. But that didn't mean they changed their views on race. It just meant that they were going to free slaves and that they really didn't want to have to deal with the issue of race and uh, what was going on in the South after the war. In fact, a lot of Northerners thought, well, this should be left to the South, just like it's left to the Northern states to deal with this particular question. Why should we be telling Southerners what to do? Now, he also misses the fact that radical Republicans wanted to do this, and the Republican Party wanted to do this for the most part, because they wanted to ensure political success. This is why they're disfranchising a number of people and enfranchising others and then ensuring and trying to ensure those newly enfranchised people can vote. He misses entirely the violence of the Union Leagues in the South and what they were doing. He, he of course, brings up the violence of the Ku Klux Klan, which is, uh, has been documented over and over again, but he misses the violence of the Union Leagues. Uh, and he, he seems, at one point, you know, he, he talks about how, uh, you know, he brings up people like... Uh, 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 dialect stories uh, in in the postbellum period, uh, and how you know the, uh, Joel Chandler Harris and uh, Thomas Nelson Page, and how these dialect stories essentially created a racism in the North. That racism was already there, and these dialect stories. He misses the point of these dialect stories. I think in a lot of ways was a symbol of reconciliation, of racial healing. Uh, it wasn't there to make fun of Southern blacks. It was there to try to include them in the stories, and you had, uh, you know, people in the North even doing these things. One of the uh, good example is a woman named Virginia Culbertson from Ohio. Uh, she did. She was writing. She actually traveled in the South and then wrote down the stories that she was getting. She's from Ohio. Wrote down stories that she was getting and then wrote uh, a book about it. It's called Banjo Tales. And um, these stories, some of them were about emancipation, some of them were about Christmas dances and uh, other things. But what you find in these stories, in fact, one of my favorites is, is a story entitled There's Nothing Like the Old Time Ways. And, of course, it's written in dialect. There's nothing like the old time ways. And so they talk about how proud these former slaves were of producing stuff. That's, that is a story that needs to be told. They were proud of producing things for the plantation and for Southerners at large, for themselves. They had pride in their work. That's a great story to tell, but of course, if you listen to David Blight, that's just racism. That's just racism. Uh, this is where this, this view, this myopic view, this very narrow view of everything is, is, is actually destroying real history because you can't have real, any real understanding you can't have really real, any real understanding of a remembered past if you're going to go into it with a presentism that, well, I'm going to look at it from my particular point of view today. You can't do that. The two things, Confederate monuments and racism, were separate. Confederate monuments were erected to the memory of soldiers or to glorify people that Southerners viewed as great men. Jackson, Lee, Davis, Beauregard. They considered these men to be great men, white Southerners. Of course, they're the, they're the majority in the South, so... Uh, what there's there's really uh, no issue there. Now you did have some uh, monuments put up to black uh, soldiers in the South. I think you had three before uh, 1965. One in the late 19th century just says there weren't many put up to black soldiers in the North. And I think that's the other. You know why were Northerners erecting statues for the same reason for the memory of of soldiers for the for the for great heroes who they considered to be great people in the war. Uh, and, and this reconciliationist message was actually very important for healing so the United States could move forward. Uh, and I think that's missed in all this. Reconciliation was important. 
Reconciliation allowed the United States to move into the 20th century, and people recognized that you needed the South to do that. You needed, you needed Southerners to move into the, into the 20th century. They're, they're now part of the Union again, so we should include them. But that, so the book, if you, I mean, it's, it's not really worth the $27 that you have to pay for it on Amazon. I think I look, looked up, it's 27 bucks now in paperback. Uh, but if you wanted to um, you know, go out and get it at a library or something, perhaps read it. If you are a student of history, for example, if you're interested in advanced studies in history, you're going to need to know the book, just like some of the other uh, books that uh, people often cite as you know, the definitive classic studies of this. You've got to know this. You've got to read Eric Foner. You've got to read, uh, got to read Charles Dew. Uh, you've got to read David Blight. Uh, so you're going to have to know them. And you need to know how to pick them apart. Uh, and this book is easy to pick apart because he misses a lot of things. The other thing, I mean, he completely, he, he says that there was really a compromise of 1877. No, there wasn't. That's already been destroyed. Uh, Michael Holt, I think, has very effectively taken that whole idea apart. Uh, and um, so he believes in that myth. Yet he, So that's C. Van Woodward. Yet he doesn't cite the other Woodward part of it, which is the strange career of Jim Crow. So a lot of problems with this particular book. But I love it when people on the left try to say, well, read this, get to reading. Like, I'm a complete dunderhead, and I've never read anything before, and I don't know anything about this stuff. Uh, or they're, they're so condescending. They're such little twits when they do things like that. It makes them look stupid. Uh, and, um, but that's, that's just the thing. And so people ask me sometimes, get into you know, historical, would you, uh, would you recommend, how would you, what school would you recommend going to graduate school? If you want to deal like, with people like Kevin Cruz, sure, go to graduate school. But that's what you're going to be faced with a lot of times. So you need to learn how to navigate those minefields and get around that stuff. Uh, but, uh, you know, Cruz uh, didn't prove anything. The AHA documents don't prove anything. And uh, the fact is, uh, you're not going to find uh, really anyone standing up at these ceremonies saying this this statue is erected to obscure biracial democracy. He his his one of his uh, evidence evidence and uh, support of his position was an op-ed that Eric Foner wrote in the New York Times. Okay, that's not really evidence. That's somebody's opinion about something. But uh, anyway, so I'll I'll just leave it at that. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time.